Okay, time to roll up the sleeves. We are going to spend one more Sunday in Revelation before switching next week into a series that will lead us into and through Christmas. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 6 this morning. Revelation 11, verses 1 to 6. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll move into this super strange and actually pretty uh, confounding verse or passage. The two witnesses, that's kind of the heading for this section of Scripture. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it, because it is given to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for... 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. And they also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Okay, so we are in the roughest, most confusing, confounding part of Revelation. Um, Early chapters of Revelation, generally accessible. Last few chapters of Revelation, pretty accessible. This middle chunk, especially between Um, that kind of oversees these three sets of seven judgments are really, really difficult and tricky. These middle bits have been the cause of endless speculation, and they've often caused people just to give up on the book. People kind of dip into the letter to the churches at the start of Revelation. They go right to the end to hear the good news of how everything wraps up in a new heavens and new earth, and they just avoid this middle section because it's seems impossibly inaccessible. But I don't want you to lose heart. We're going to move through this section. We're going to make our way slow and steady. And today what I want to do is I want to speak specifically to what do we do when we come across a section of Scripture like this where you might read it, you might consult some online resources, you might have some commentaries in your home, You might ask some questions of a pastor or trusted um, uh, wise people or professors, and you might still come up empty. What do you do when the Bible just sort of doesn't make sense and you can't confidently drill down into, oh, this is how we're to understand it, and I I, kind of get it. I want to show you what to do today, and this is a good passage to do it because as we're about to learn there's almost no consensus among faithful, serious, biblical theologians, scholars, pastors on exactly what we see happening in these verses and therefore how it ought to shape how we live here and now. Okay, so these middle chapters of Revelation revolve around these three sets of seven judgments. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And Within these judgments, there are what some people call interludes. 
The, the judgments don't go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They go one, two, three, four, five, six. Some stuff happens for a chapter or two. Then the seventh seal. Then the seventh trumpet. Then the seventh bowl. It's pretty confusing. And uh, most commentators don't really know what to do with it other than say it's an interlude. It's a pattern. It shows up across all seven, uh, all, all three sets of seven judgments. And that's what we're seeing here. Revelation 11 takes place uh, between the uh, sixth trumpet and the seventh. It's part of this interlude. And it highlights these two special witnesses. It introduces these characters which are really shrouded in mystery. We're offered a lot of clues, but it's never made explicit who these witnesses are. If you ever come across someone, whether in person, online, even in a book, who states definitively that they know who these witnesses are, I would encourage you to sort of hold that with a healthy level of skepticism. And that's because there's almost no consensus on who these witnesses are even within people who hold to the same fundamental view of how to read Revelation. Not only that, but theologians and scholars will pretty forthrightly, they'll they'll straight up, they'll just say, of everything in Revelation, this chapter might be the most difficult to apprehend and to make sense of. So, spoiler alert, I'm not going to solve a 2,000-year-old mystery. I'm not going to somehow work some theological, exegetical magic and make all the pieces fit together. But instead, I'm going to share how each view of Revelation understands these witnesses so we have a bigger picture and then land back in what do we do when we come across passages like this that don't make sense? Do we just ignore them? Do we toss them out? Do we just double down and keep going farther and farther down the rabbit hole and and be tenaciously... Um, committed to figuring it all out. Okay, let's look first at the four different views of Revelation that we've been talking about through this series and how they understand these witnesses and this time period of 42 months or 1260 days that provide a context for the witnesses to arrive on the scene. Let's look at the preterist view. The preterist, remember, reads Revelation as primarily a set of prophecies given to the first century church as a warning about what's going to happen in a few years in terms of the Jewish war and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the second temple, that occurs in AD 66 to AD 70. So this view understands most of Revelation to have already happened and happened in the first century. What they would argue is the 42 months of the 1260 days, that was the period of the Jewish war. And that is almost exactly uh, historically true. The Jewish war lasted about 42 months. And the two witnesses, they would say, aren't actually people. They're symbolic for the dual witness of God's word in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, connected to Moses and Elijah that were confronting the Jewish religious authorities who by the time um, the Jewish wars 
kind of begin to be enacted had reached a state of complete and total corruption. It wasn't about honoring God and being a light in the midst of Roman imperial darkness. It really was about leveraging their power, cozying up to Rome, accruing all the benefits of turning their backs on who and what God called them to be. So the two, prophecy, uh, the two witnesses are meant to be understood as the prophetic witness of God's word and faithful uh, individuals who spoke truth to power against the Jewish religious authorities before the Jewish war. The historicist perspective sees Revelation as a slow unfolding of all the events of history that are going to happen between Jesus' first coming and his second. And they look at the 1260 days and say, those are actually years that align up really well to the duration of the Roman Catholic papal power between around 300 when it gets established and 1500 when the reform kind of the Protestant Reformation breaks the back of sort of the religious monopoly that the Roman Catholic Church had. And the two witnesses, they say, are not literal two individuals, but they're symbolic for those who stood up against uh, the corruption that uh, the Roman Catholic Church had perpetuated uh, that kind of sparked the Reformation. Now, the futurist view. The futurist view is the most mainstream Christian view. It's actually pretty new. A lot of people um, don't know that no Christian believed in things like um, rapture theology, uh, a seven-year Great Tribulation period, and all of these things tied into an end-of-days really short timeline until like 180, 150 years ago. So this is actually a new theory of reading Revelation, but it's gained a lot of steam and momentum. And it's what most people uh, and most Christians associate with end times prophecy. This view says most of Revelation hasn't happened. It's going to happen in the future, condensed in a specific seven years of tribulation called the Great Tribulation. So they look at this passage and say the 1260 days or three and a half years refers to events that are going to take place during the second half of the tribulation. 42 months, three and a half years, half of seven is three and a half. These are the judgments that are going to fall on the earth and on the inhabitants of the earth in the second half of this seven-year tribulation period. And most, not all, but most futurists would say these two prophets are going to be uh, real, literal, person number one, person number two, who are going to um, speak and prophesy and be a prophetic witness during this time of calamity centered in Jerusalem. And because of the miracles that get associated with these witnesses that Revelation 11 talks about, they think it's either Moses and Elijah or maybe Moses and Enoch or Elijah and Enoch but there's kind of the leading theory is it's Moses and Elijah because of the miracles that are performed in terms of uh, uh, water being turned to blood, fire coming down from heaven. Those, those are miracles that are associated with those prophets in the Old Testament. And so the theory goes that God is going to somehow miraculously establish these witnesses in Jerusalem during this time period to, in a special way, speak to the inhabitants of the earth 
around what is happening and how they're called to turn towards the worship of God. And the last view is the spiritualist slash idealist view. And this is the view that says Revelation is deeply relevant to every single Christian generation in every locality across different time periods because Revelation shows us a pattern of what happens almost inevitably whenever the kingdom of God crashes up against counter-kingdoms of this world. And so what we're looking at in Revelation are cyclical patterns that repeat in history as God's people are faithful, move and take ground against the kingdoms of darkness, but as those kingdoms of darkness push back, there are these um, predictable patterns that occur again and again and again, and that's what we see in Revelation. And so this view looks to these two facets of chapter 11, the 100 or 1260 days and the two witnesses in a pretty symbolic way and says we don't want to land in any kind of real specificity, but these are patterns that play out. And this view says this three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days, this symbolizes the church age. That if you think of all of time as the number seven, completeness, half of that time was the old covenant, Half of that time is the new covenant. So symbolically, the church age is three and a half years out of a total and perfected seven years. And then in that time, who are the great witnesses? Who are the two witnesses? Well, the two witnesses are symbolic to the comprehensive ministry of God's people throughout the ages. As God's people speak from that first covenant of Moses and into the prophetic witness of the prophets and how those cohere and find their fulfillment in Jesus. And now we live into the age to come because of what he has done for us and in us and through us. These witnesses are symbolic representations of the church throughout the the age of the church, right from Pentecost until Jesus comes. So that's a really, really fast skimming overview. But I hope you're gripped and maybe a little bit disturbed by the fact that these views are really divergent, right? Like these are four pretty different views. There's a little bit of overlap, let's say, between the preterist and the historicist view in some ways. But man, the futurists understand these witnesses very differently than the spiritualist view or certainly the preterist view. And I want to highlight that to just be honest and say there are parts of the Bible that are really confusing, even to very smart, faithful people who have devoted their lives to studying the symbolism of a passage like this. And you get some of those people in the same room And they can't even agree which parts of this passage are literal versus symbolic because Revelation as a whole is an apocalyptic piece of literature. It's revealing, but not in a straightforward, easy to access, bullet point, just give me the straight information kind of way. It uses signs and symbols and symbols within symbols and repetition of symbols and numbers that all have these layers of meaning Scholars can't even agree on whether or not 
we're looking at a future event or a past event or something which is unfolding currently, hardly anybody agrees with or agrees on how to interpret this particular passage. There are very few scholars. There are some, and some theologians for sure, and some pastors definitely, who would push their, you know, strike the pulpit and say, I know in my bones this is what this is referring to. But the vast majority of scholars and theologians will say, this is really foggy territory. This is an amazing vision, but exactly how to understand it is something that we should be very, very careful with as Christians. We don't want to be too triumphalistic in our declaration that, oh, this is clearly what this means. So there's an internal caution here towards humility. So what do we do with this? What do you do with a passage like this? Here we are, Sunday, November 29th. We've read this passage. It's strange. We maybe have heard of one of the theories of how to understand this, but now we get an overview of the other ones and that just muddies the water even more. Where do we go from here? And I want to suggest that's a really important question to grapple with. Because if you're engaging Scripture thoughtfully and slowly and intentionally, you're going to come across other passages like this, whether it's in the Gospels, whether it's in the Old Testament. There are going to be passages that you're going to read them once and be like, huh, that's weird. You're going to read it again. That's not going to be any more clarifying. It's going to be full of ways of talking about things or symbols or stories within stories that are going to leave you feeling like I really have no idea what to do with this. Even if you dig and dig and, and watch some YouTube videos and gather some resources, after all of that, you may not be any closer to a definitive answer. So what should we do as Christians when Scripture isn't clear? When if we're just honest with each other and with ourselves and with God, we say, We've done digging. We've done some homework. The, these, none of these puzzle pieces seem to fit together. Here is my advice. When we find ourselves stuck, when we find ourselves tempted to lose heart, focus on the big picture, look for main principles or themes, and then apply those principles and themes to your Christian walk. So you want to focus on the big picture, you want to look for main principles. Maybe there's only one or a main theme and then prayerfully say, God, how does that principle or theme work itself out in my life? So for example, you get to a passage like this, Revelation, in the midst of these strange symbolic judgments, we don't know whether they have happened or they're going to happen or they're happening now and these witnesses come on the scene. Okay, big picture. Let's step out of the weeds. Let's step back. Take a breath. Look at the passage and say, what is being emphasized here? Well, we see God raising up witnesses. Witnesses who have power to boldly and faithfully share with the world who God is and what He has done. And even when there are forces that are marshaled against those witnesses, they overcome by God's power. So that's the big picture, without getting into the details of who, what, when, where, why, and how. 
So what's the larger principle or theme that you could extract from that? Well, the theme of the passage is one of witness or to be a witness. And hopefully if we're reading Scripture and reading through different segments of Scripture fairly faithfully, this isn't going to be the first time we encounter the word witness or the theme witness or the call to be a witness to other people. The theme witness is a big one in Scripture. And in fact, it's one that you can use to kind of summarize and hold together the entire scriptural story. There's a really good Bible project video on witness that I'd like us to watch now that brings into clarity the significance of this word and theme. When you hear the word witness, you might think of someone who sees something shocking or important and then shares their testimony with others. The word witness is used like this in the Bible too, but here's what's really fascinating. This word actually helps us understand the entire storyline of Scripture. In the Bible, a witness is basically someone who sees something important or amazing. In Hebrew, this person is an aide, and in Greek, a martus. And if this person begins to share what they've seen, we call this bearing witness, in Hebrew, oud, and in Greek, martyreo. So in the story of Ruth, when Boaz buys land from Naomi's family, he calls together witnesses to see the transaction, so that if there's a later dispute about the land, they can bear witness about what they saw. So that's the basic meaning of the word witness. Now, if we follow this idea throughout the Bible, we learn that God wants a group of witnesses, people who see and experience Him to ood or represent Him to the world. So beginning with the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel witness Yahweh as the powerful king of the nations when He rescues them from slavery. Then He appoints this one nation to bear witness or ood to the rest of the nations about what they experienced. He calls them a kingdom of priests, or people who connect all other nations to Yahweh, the true God and King. But there's a big problem. The Israelites aren't good witnesses. In fact, they start worshiping other gods. So God raises up a chief witness, Moses, to ood or bear witness to the people who are supposed to be the real witnesses. When Moses meets with Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he sees and experiences God face to face. When he comes down, he oods, he bears witness to the people about his experience. He even writes a song as a witness so that they would never forget how God has cared for and rescued them. But as the story goes on, Israel does forget. They fail to truly see God, so they fail as his witnesses. So God raises up prophets who are like Moses to ood, to open their eyes to who their God really is. Like Isaiah. He has a vision of God as the cosmic king, and he's sent to Ut to bear witness to the Israel of his day because they're blind, they're corrupt, and they don't recognize God as their king. So Isaiah says that one day, God will raise up the ultimate chief witness, a figure called the servant. He will open the eyes of the blind so that they can truly see Yahweh and bear witness to the nations that their God is the king who will rescue the world. And now, when we turn to the story of Jesus, we find him claiming to be that servant and witness spoken of by Isaiah. He's the ultimate witness, or in Greek, the martus. Crowds of people witness him saying that he's bringing God's kingdom, that it's here, right now, through him. They see Jesus healing people, even restoring sight to the blind. 
Many recognize who he is and respond to his message, but many others still refuse to truly see. Even the nation's leaders won't listen to him. Rather, they kill Jesus for bearing witness to God's kingdom, that is, for being a martyr. In fact, this is where the word martyr comes from. But then, after Jesus' death, something amazing happens. Jesus' friends see him alive from the dead, and they recognize that he is the divine king, Yahweh himself, who has come to rescue the world. After that, Jesus sends them out to martyreo, that is, to bear witness to the nations, to open their eyes to this risen king who has conquered death and who offers freedom and rescue and the hope of a new creation. And it's this story about Jesus that's been spread all around the world by faithful witnesses. And to this day, when someone hears the story of Jesus and experiences the love of God for all humanity, the most natural thing to do is to simply bear witness. So the general principle that I think we want to extract from a passage like this is that God has raised up a community of witnesses, also known as the church, his body, his bride, that every Christian is called to be a witness. Even if you think these particular witnesses are literal people, let's say either in the past or are going to emerge in the future, that shouldn't distract us from a more primary priority to recognize, oh, I'm called to be a witness. I'm called to bear witness to who God is, what he's done in my life, and how I'm called to follow him faithfully. And then when you understand that theme in a passage that is uh, low resolution and you can't kind of fully get a grip on, you can still take out that theme of witness and say, how do I apply that to my walk with Christ? Which leads naturally into the question of, how is my witness going? How faithfully am I bearing witness to God and His goodness and what He's done in my life? See, a witness testifies to something important and is willing to do so even to the point of death, right? Martyrdom, martyr comes from the same word as witness. Now, when I became a Christian, I was only like, just 14 years old, and I was encouraged to witness to my friends, and what I understood that to mean, and what was sometimes not so subtly reinforced was that I needed to figure out a way to smuggle Jesus into every conversation that I had with my friends and family members who weren't believers. And that was often really awkward, because I thought bearing witness meant to force conversations about Jesus with those who actually don't want to have them. And as I grew up in my faith and read more widely and matured a little bit, I realized that witnessing has a larger meaning. It has a richer meaning. And it's about learning to walk in a way that, yes, holds a willingness and an eagerness to talk about your faith with other people. I think if you have been transformed by Jesus, there's always that impulse to want to share in a way that's authentic and real and gentle about Jesus' love and forgiveness and power and grace in your own life. But to bear witness, to be a faithful witness, also means to live in a way that's aligned to that message. 
where I reveal through my life, for those who are paying attention, that I am genuinely seeking to prioritize my life around the values and mission of Jesus. That I am indeed a disciple. I'm not just a Christian in title only. I don't mean that in kind of a uh, culturally Christian way. That's not a stand-in for just a moral religious framework where I try and be a good person and Jesus is my guide on that but that I have been transformed and changed and saved by Jesus, but now I'm also learning to walk in His ways in the world. So how are you doing in that area? And how, how am I doing in that area? How, how's your witness? A lot of people shrink from that calling because they think that to be a faithful witness means to be a perfect witness. You always have to have the perfect words and the right answers and Bible verses at the tip of your tongue when people have questions. Your, your life has to be without incongruity, that there is just a fundamental and overwhelming integrity. You have to be a perfect person. That's not true. A witness doesn't have to be per- perfect, but a witness does have to be faithful. And a witness does have to show evidence that they are increasingly conforming themselves to the message that they are bearing witness to. And if we are sharing a message about how Jesus can transform lives and offer deep hope and real significant healing, then we need to be walking in a way that God is reinforcing and doing those things in our own lives so that there isn't a disconnect between the message we proclaim, and our Monday through Sunday everyday lives. A witness will be able to share authentically and gently and patiently and faithfully at least how they've seen God move in their own life. You don't have to have every, uh, an answer for every question or objection to the Christian faith, but to be a witness means to at least say, this is what God has done in my life. I can't even explain all of it. But I was blind, and now I see. I was without hope, and now I have an eternal hope. I struggled with these uh, sins and addictions and issues, and now Jesus has led me to a place of freedom. I was deeply and profoundly self-centered, and now it's one of my greatest gifts and joys to share, as Rick spoke to, share openly with those around me. I was thinking about the fact that this is a very unique time to be a witness. Uh, We might not get another pandemic chance uh, to be a witness. Uh, This is a time when people are sufficiently shaken that they are actively seeking out solutions to the hopelessness that is kind of edging into their heart the disorientation that they feel, the lack of predictability and control that they are trying to reckon with as they look out onto the horizon line of the next month, year, decade. This is a unique time to be a witness. And so I think it's really important that you and I take our responsibility to be a witness seriously. How can we do that? How can we right now, and specifically right now in the context of a pandemic, be a faithful and effective witness 
for Jesus? To, how can we effectively point people and nudge people towards Jesus in grace and in love and in gentleness and with patience? How do we do that? Uh, here are just a few thoughts. Maybe others are going to come to you, but this is what came to me in preparation for today. The first I would say, lean into that affirmation that we hold as a covenant church because it's really important. And that is to be cultivating a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. Often we can jump right away to strategy. We can be thinking about, this is how I'm going to have this conversation. We're playing out things in our mind. We're making our plans. There's a time and a place for that. But the first thing we need to do is to come before God and say, God, I want to cultivate a sensitivity to your spirit so that when you say, pick up the phone and phone this person, when you nudge me to write a letter, when you prompt me to make a really quick pivot at work and spend some time with a coworker and follow up with them because it seems like something's off, or maybe to buy a gift for someone, but I'm not going to be so busy and so distracted that I'm going to miss those promptings. I want to walk with a, a cultivated sensitivity to ways that you are leading me to be a witness to people around me. Another thing that I think is important, especially in a social media age, is as a general rule, I think it's really important for Christians to avoid gloom and doom on social media. Social media is really tricky. And I certainly wouldn't advocate that people avoid authentically sharing. But I think when I observe the Christians who I follow on social media, whether they're prominent or just regular lay people who aren't in the spotlight, who don't have book deals, who no one else follows, one of the things that I appreciate is Christians who seem to be consistently posting and interacting with other people with soberness and alertness, but also a non-anxious presence. There doesn't seem to be an emotional reflexivity where they're putting down a wall of text and saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. They don't seem to be railing against people there's often an invitation, let's say, if the conversation does begin to unfold or even go off sides a little bit, they're very quick to say, hey, why don't we pick this up in person? Because this format and this context isn't great for extended conversations. I think these are also Christians who are trying to, uh, instead of stirring the pot, point people towards what is beautiful and true and good and faithful and praiseworthy. There was a really good article that I put out in the Summit on Friday, Summit newsletter for, for our church, called Stop Stirring the Pot. And that's, that's a good article for all of us to read maybe several times. To just do a gut check and say, our witness on social media is amplified because it's social media it can, and it can go anywhere and it, lots of people can read it. That doesn't mean to shrink away from that challenge to be a witness on social media, but let's be careful and judicious and lean more into positively pointing people to the hope that is in Jesus. I think another way that we can be a witness for Jesus during these pandemic times is to be a little bit more aggressive, whether it's via text or a phone call or an email or Facebook Messenger 
or DMing via Instagram, whatever your mode of social engagement, as we're separated from people, connect with people and ask if you could be praying for them for anything. Most people that I know who are not uh, believers and are maybe even antagonistic towards the Christian faith, I've never really had people get angry at me with a gentle, sincere offer to pray for them or their family or their situations that they might share with me. And now we have an opportunity to step into people's lives and say, hey, I'm setting aside 5, 10, 15 minutes today to pray for people that matter to me. You matter to me. I want to be, I'm going to be praying for you and your family, but is there anything specifically that I could be praying for? Worst case scenario, you're going to get people saying, nope, but thanks so much for thinking of us. I appreciate it. But that's a powerful witness. It shows that we are, we believe in prayer. It shows care and concern. Even if people on the other end don't think that prayer is doing anything, it still feels like support and love to them because they're realizing, wow, this person, I don't think prayer does anything, but like this person is investing time and energy into, I guess, kind of sending good thoughts out into the universe. I don't know, but like that, they care enough to invest some of their own time in trying to make my life better. That's a powerful witness. And of course, we do know that prayer does cause things to happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. So offering to listen and pray with your non-Christian friends, invite them out for a walk. Often the first step of being an effective witness is being an effective listener and really trying to understand where people are coming from. And then lastly, if you want to be a witness, you can do an old school thing and just invite them to church. It's never been easier to invite people to church because we're not gathering as a church. And so all those barriers of entry of the awkwardness of like, I haven't been to church in years. I've never been to a church. Oh, I, I kind of, I don't really know what goes on there. I'm kind of creeped out by it. It's weird. Like, I don't mind the message part so much, but I don't want to sing like this, the love songs to Jesus. That's, that's kind of creepy and strange. All those barriers of entry have kind of been removed now that we're all online. And next week, Rick and I are going to do a really, I think, fun and engaging tag team message as we move towards Christmas that we're designing to be accessible to people of faith, and also people who are interested in exploring what might faith have to offer me? Why do I need faith? Um, and what does all of this have to do with Jesus and Christmas? I mean, those are questions that are kind of dialed up quite a bit during these times. There's a bit more urgency to those questions now. And so Rick and I are going to be addressing some of those questions in the weeks ahead. But it's never been easy to say, easier to say, hey, our church does a live stream on Sunday. It's at 9 o'clock. If you're not up that early, don't worry about it. They record it. Why don't you watch it and let's talk about it after. Tell me what you thought. It's never been easier to invite people to church where they're going to get an exposure to people witnessing to the goodness of God, the hope that is in God, and the promise that's on offer for those who turn to God. So when we come across a strange passage in Scripture like Revelation 11, don't let the strangeness, the weirdness, the difficulty of it detract you from asking, okay, wait a second, how does this challenge me in my discipleship to Jesus here and now? Because if we look for the big picture, if we draw out even one major theme or principle, and then we prayerfully 
respond to that theme in our everyday lives, it's okay if we don't have everything figured out of that passage of revelation of this particular part of scripture where where we've landed, we can still be a faithful witness. And so let's let this shocking and strange and frankly really weird account remind us that we have a role to play as witnesses here and now. And so let's redouble our efforts and really think through and pray through, God, show us what it means to be a faithful witness during these times. Help us to live increasingly aligned to Jesus and the gospel and to make sure, God, that your priorities are my priorities. May your kingdom come, may my kingdom go, so that through my life, in ways small and big, I can point people towards Jesus during this Advent season. Let's pray. God, we need your help and grace to be faithful witnesses. We ask for your forgiveness and your discipline for those times that we have carried that responsibility really lightly, for those times that we haven't really sought to be consciously dependent on your Spirit, to be led by love, and we've just barged into situations or conversations motivated more from our own flesh and ego and pride than actually seeking to love our neighbors as ourselves. Please forgive us of that, God. And not just forgive us, but change that about us. Give us wisdom and maturity so that when we point people towards Jesus, it's received in a way that is from you and is for your glory. Amen. So now I'm going to send you off with a benediction, which is a word of blessing as you move as witnesses into this new week. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you remember that you are called and empowered to be a witness for Jesus. And may your witness be fruitful. And may God use it to cause people to consider Jesus and then choose Him during this Advent season. And may this Advent and Christmas season be an unforgettable one as a result for the glory of God and the expansion of the kingdom. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Go be a faithful witness. Thanks for joining us.